0: Well, I wonder if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to um, two passages this morning. Uh, two passages. We are uh, looking, first of all, at Luke chapter 1. And, uh, and then we'll read from uh, Matthew chapter 1 as well. I hope you're not getting tired of Matthew chapter 1. Um, there's a lot to dig into. But today we're going to... Uh, bring particular focus to the virgin birth. Um, And uh, I want to read two passages that uh, tell us about that and the circumstances of that. Let's uh, read from Luke chapter 1, verse 26, down to 45. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And turn back to uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. And uh, we'll read Matthew's account. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill the word that the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words and the revelation that we have before us. Again, we pray you'd fill us with a sense of expectation and joy as we read about it and we think about it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <laughs> well, I wanted to take time this morning to focus on the, uh, the doctrine of the virgin birth, or perhaps more accurately, the doctrine of the virgin conception uh, of Jesus. Now, you'll know that uh, Jesus' life is bounded by two great miracles. Uh, at the end of his life is the resurrection from the dead, and uh, people don't just just don't come back to life after being dead for three days, but Jesus did. All the testimony is that that's what he did. And then there's the miracle at the beginning of his life. Um, His conception occurs without the help of a man. That's an unusual thing. That that doesn't happen either. But here we are. The Bible presents us with these two bookends, if you like, of Jesus' life. Is Resurrection at one end and the virgin conception at the other. And in between there's lots of smaller miracles that uh, attest to the identity of uh, this Jesus who came into the world. Both of those events that bookend his life, uh, they are derided by the world. People laugh at them uh, on the grounds that neither of them ever happen regularly. Um, they're one-off events in history. And scientists will argue there's an infinitesimally small probability that a woman could conceive without the help of a man. And then at the end of his life, there's an infinitesimally small probability that a man could rise from the dead after being in a tomb for three days. And all the evidence is that he was indeed dead before he went into the tomb. And so it's infinitesimally small. And you combine these two infinitesimally small things, multiply them together. And you get infinitesimally, infinitesimally small probability, scientifically speaking, that such a thing could happen. But there we are. That's what the Bible says. It tells us, it gives us. Eyewitness testimony and personal testimony to the fact of these things. We'll leave the resurrection of of Jesus from the dead for Easter. But I want to think more about what the Bible says about the birth of Jesus and its significance for us today. Why does it matter that there was a virgin conception? And I want to begin, first of all, by thinking about the promise of the virgin birth. That this is not an unexpected event. The idea of the birth of the Messiah through a virgin should come as no surprise to Bible readers. Since that is found in Scripture. Uh, Matthew, in his account, Quotes from Isaiah 7:14: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there's something to be understood about this quotation. Uh, it comes from the, the prophet Isaiah, who's writing towards the, the end of the 8th century BC when Ahaz was king of Judah, one of the worst kings in Judah's history. And uh, Isaiah 7 tells us that Ahaz is faced with a dilemma. King Ahaz has a dilemma to to resolve. Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are against him and bearing down upon him. And the Lord in his grace comes to Ahaz and invites him, asks him to ask for a sign from God about what God is going to do. He says, Ahaz, come to me, pray, ask for a sign, and I'll give you one. And Ahaz doesn't believe it. And he ignores it. He wants to find his own solution. And so he goes to one of the superpowers, to Assyria, not Syria. Syria's bearing down, but Assyria could be a friend, as the great, the great empire at the time. And he ignores the offer that God makes to him. But God makes a promise anyway. And it's the promise of Isaiah 7.14 or Matthew 1.23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, God is not going to abandon his plans, which he has had from eternity past. He is not going to give up because of the foolishness of a king or the foolishness of a nation. But his plans will go like clockwork, as he said. His plans will not be thwarted. And so you find that when you get to Isaiah 8, that though Ahaz, king of Judah, goes his own way, God still speaks of Emmanuel. He mentions Emmanuel twice in chapter 8. God with us. God with us. God is coming. And then you read in Luke chapter 1. An allusion to the promise made to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Gabriel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so, Gabriel invokes the promise that was given to, to David a thousand years before. And says, this, is, this king is coming. This king is going to be born in the womb of Mary. And so Gabriel links this coming king to a virgin. You see, you begin to see how Isaiah's prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled. Now, all of these uh, happenings around Mary and Joseph points to the most remarkable and supernatural intervention of God for human beings. It's not simply that the prophecy was fulfilled, but that the prophecy is fulfilled in a supernatural way. Not natural, supernatural. God, as it were, invades history. And upends all the normal rules of science, if you like, and brings about this conception of the child. And this is the great feature of Jesus' life, isn't it? This supernatural intervention. His life to begin with was a supernatural event, his life to end with, his resurrection and ascension, is a supernatural event. And all the way through his life is marked by supernatural interventions. And the reason for that is, it's in the name, isn't it, Emmanuel? God with us. God has come down. God has come to be amongst his people, to call his people to himself. And it points to this most remarkable, spectacular, unparalleled divine intervention into human history. That God himself was coming into the world. Well, the promise of the virgin birth. But here's the second thing. What do these passages say about the nature of the birth of Jesus? And so let's think about the witness to the virgin birth. In the New Testament, we have two accounts of the birth of Jesus. Uh, One focusing on Joseph, Matthew's account, and the other focus on, on Mary, which you'll find in Luke. If you first look at Matthew's account, you find here that uh, Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another. Um, it's kind of like an engagement, but more than an engagement, but not quite a marriage yet. Uh, it's, it's a kind of contractual ag- agreement between families at this point. And... Uh, <coughs> Very unlike our engagement today, which is just a matter between two people. But this is between two people and their families. And so much so that uh, to break off a betrothal is almost de- is described as a divorce. That's what uh, Joseph considers when he discovers that Mary is with child. And what Matthew tells us is, it's not as... Joseph perhaps initially thought that she's been with some other man. But this this conception has come about by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit has intervened. Of course, Joseph didn't know that when when he heard the news of Mary's pregnancy. And she certainly was not pregnant by him. And no doubt there was a scandal, potentially, That his betrothed, his wife-to-be, was pregnant. And Joseph thinks this way. He's a just man. He's a righteous man. And he thinks, "I I don't want to put her to shame, so I want to quietly divorce her. He could have kicked up a fuss. He could have trashed the reputation of Mary and her family. But he didn't. He's a just man. But then something remarkable happens. As Joseph is sleeping, an angel appears to him in a dream. And tells him of this miracle that's happened in Mary's womb. That this child is of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit has brought about the conception of this this baby. And the angel tells Joseph who this child is going to be what he will do, what God has promised. And as you think about that, I mean, just imagine, put yourself in Joseph's shoes, as it were. What a challenge to his faith. He's a righteous, a just man, believes in God, but what a challenge to his faith. To accept this, no small thing. But Joseph does as the angel asks and takes Mary for his wife. And so the conclusion here is that Mary was indeed a young virgin, that there was a supernatural intervention in her womb. There was clearly no evidence of any other interference in her life. Joseph finds none. Uh, Matthew could find none as one who compiled the gospel. He couldn't find anybody who would admit to making Mary pregnant. Nobody was found, and so the conclusion is that this is a supernatural intervention, a supernatural conception. Luke's account is different, and looks at Mary's life and reaction. Uh, so Luke here is a remember where he comes from. He's a, a Gentile convert. He accompanied the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys in the Book of Acts, and uh, Paul calls him a doctor. Uh, in one of his letters. Uh, so he's, he's not a common man like some, most of the, the apostles. Um, he has uh, certain qualifications if you like. He knows something of the ins and outs of the human body. And he's also a careful compiler of the accounts of Jesus in his gospel. He says that uh, back in chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Where he says this. Uh, It seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus' friend, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. So he's careful. And he has knowledge, scientific knowledge, if you like. And he investigates matters. No doubt Luke was able to meet those earliest Christians. He may even have met Mary. But you see how he's able to investigate and talk to the early Christians who are present. And again, Mary is described as a virgin betrothed to Joseph. And the angel Gabriel appears to her and the promise is made in verse 31 of Luke chapter 1. Behold, you will conceive... In your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And it's linked to a promise in verses 32, 33 which we read already. And then Mary has a question, verse 34. um, How will this be since I'm a virgin? An obvious question. How can I have a child if I'm a virgin? Then Gabriel explains in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Nothing less than supernatural intervention into her womb. What an amazing thing. One of my favorite theologians, Herman Bavinck, says this. That the, the virgin conception was a demonstration of power that made her womb fertile in the act of overshadowing her as a cloud. So this is a supernatural occurrence, attested to by two independent witnesses, Matthew and Luke, in in accounts that are compiled in different ways. Now, the idea of a virgin birth isn't so easy to accept, is it? Um, some have a, a scientific objection. Virgin births don't happen. But we have to reckon with the fact that Jesus' life is one that's marked by remarkable supernatural events. And if you want to throw away one of those events, you have to throw away all of them. And we're not at liberty to choose the ones we like and the ones that we don't like. We either accept them all, or we accept none of them. And if you reject all miracles altogether, then you reject the notion of God. Lots of people do, but that's to beg the question. Is there a God? You're deciding the question before you've considered the evidence. And our contention here is that there is simply too much eyewitness testimony... And evidence in the life of Jesus of the supernatural to dismiss the virgin birth without considering all of his life. And you should read not simply the virgin birth, but the whole of his life. I urge you to do that if you haven't done so already. To read the whole of the gospel and to take his life as a whole and say, is this person who he claims to be? Once you answer that question, you'll have a better answer for the virgin birth. Well, some have a scientific objection. Some have a, a theological objection to the virgin birth. Uh, some people try and argue that uh, since his conception is different from ours, isn't he therefore different from us? Not truly human. And that's a problem because if he is not truly like us in our essence, in our being, as a human being, how can he possibly be our savior? But we need to understand that the manner of his birth does not determine his true humanity and his nature. Uh, you, you You only have to look at a couple of other examples in the Bible to see this. Was Adam a pure human being? How is he made? He didn't come out of the womb. He's made from the dust. But he's fully human. Or what about Eve? Made from part of Adam, says the Bible. Not from another womb. Is she any less human for that? No. She was human. So the question for us is, does this the spirit... Forming Jesus in the womb of, of the Virgin Mary mean that he is not actually a man? No, of course not. It's a supernatural intervention in the creative process. Scripture, so that, that theological objection falls away when you take all the Bible into consideration. So Scripture attests to the virgin birth or the virgin conception and the question before us is a simple one. Do we believe what the scripture is, going to, is saying to us, what God is saying to us through his word? Do we accord it the authority it claims so that we trust it more than we trust our personal experience? That's always the, the problem for human beings. We put our experience before the word of God. We say, that can't be true in your words because I have experienced this. Bible invites us to reverse that and say believe God's word put that before your experience and all your, everything that your senses is telling you put it to one side and trust God trust his word so the witness to the virgin birth, thirdly what's the significance of the virgin birth and I think there are three areas where this is important for our thinking as Christians The first is to do with the identity of Jesus. And the events of the virgin birth point to the fact that Jesus is both human and divine. You see, if, if his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, and if he is to be a king on the throne of his father David, then he has to come as a man. So it's no no surprise that he underwent the full development of a human being. Born in a womb. Given birth to. Grew up. Grew in wisdom and knowledge. As his human mind developed and grew. Supernaturally conceived, yes, but going through all the normal human processes. To be perfectly prepared to be the saviour. That human beings need. But he's also Emmanuel. God with us. In other words. A supernatural intervention by the Holy Spirit. In his conception. Is the way by which the. The son of God. The second person of the Trinity. Comes into the world. And so we find. In the person of Jesus Christ, this mysterious union between human nature and divine nature all at once. One person, two natures. natures—a most remarkable thing. So it tells us about the identity of the Lord Jesus. But secondly, the second implication of the virgin birth is to do with the progress of the history of salvation. You see, here's a new moment where, where into the earth came the one who was to be head of a new humanity, Jesus Christ. And in opposition to, in contrast to, Adam. You see, until that point, all people are in Adam. They were born in Adam. They're sons and daughters of Adam. Descended from the line of Adam. And therefore, human beings, all human beings, have two problems. One is what you might call the imputation of Adam's sin to us. So because Adam sinned, we are all guilty in a sense of that sin. Because we're part of his family. We bear the responsibility for it. But secondly, there's the as well as the imputation of sin there's a transmission of sin from generation to generation leading to new actual sins in your life the reason you sin is because of this transmission of sinfulness now legally jesus was the son of joseph in law but not by natural generation so there is no transmission of that corruption of sin to Jesus. Because of that supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. There was no imputation of Adam's sin to Jesus. And thus he, became, he came into the world as a spotless individual. Free of the curse of sin and death. In one sense ahead of a new humanity. Christ the head and cornerstone. And so under Jesus, all could be saved. If you want to read more about that, read Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. So the progress of redemptive history. But the third implication of the virgin birth is to do with the saving grace of God taking the initiative to send his son into the world to be the saviour. You see, it was the spotless, uncorrupted man who could be a fitting saviour, who would be the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's he who, though undeserving of the curse of death, would become sin for us, as Paul says. Not that Jesus became a sinner, but he voluntarily became liable for the sins of his people. And he bore the wrath of God. And the punishment for them. And he suffered silently. As a lamb led to the slaughter. And for all of that. He had to be like us in every way. Otherwise he couldn't be our head and king. He couldn't represent us. He had to be like us. He couldn't just look like a man. You'll know through church history there have been many heresies about Jesus and his true nature and identity. And they say, well, he looked like a man, but he wasn't really a man. He was some kind of super creature or some kind of amalgamated intermediate being or something. Uh, and give all fancy names to all of these heresies that have come about over the centuries. But he didn't just look like a man or come in the appearance of a man. He was a man in every respect. He had a human mind, a human soul, as well as a human body. And Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the great Greek early church fathers, said in the 4th century to another bishop with heretical views about Jesus, he said this, whatever is not taken up cannot be healed. If he does not take up every aspect of human nature, then that aspect that he leaves behind cannot be saved so he needs to have a human body he needs to have a human mind, he has to have a human soul he has to have all of these things so that human beings can be saved what an amazing gospel this is, there's nothing like it in the whole world, no other religion has a system like this every other religion is all about, it seems to me Man trying to get to God. If I can be good or do good works or be good to other people and do things, then surely God will accept me and take me up into heaven and I can climb that ladder, as it were, to get into heaven. But the Christian gospel says there is no ladder. You cannot climb that ladder. No matter how good you are, you're always in the pits. But God has come down into the pit in his Son Jesus Christ. And he has taken upon himself human nature like yours and mine, that he might then endure for our sake and represent us. He is the new David fighting the, the old Goliath, if you like, the Goliath of the powers of sin and death and though he looks weak he dies and saves his people this is our jesus come into the world friends what majesty in this glorious gospel this god who comes down to us who condescends to us where we can do nothing to get to him is he not worthy Of your praise and worship? Is he not worthy of your absolute trust? Friends, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Give your life to the Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that he has done. In taking upon himself our nature. And we pray, Father, that you'd come amongst us. And bring new life to each one of us for those who have not yet found it. Come we pray. Help us to see Jesus afresh. In his name we pray. Amen.